Hey there, it's Angela Messino, the executive producer of Resettled. Now that we've had some time to step back from some of the stories we produced, we wanted to try something a little different. We invited some of those who were a part of the project to come together and talk about their experiences. And we wanted to see what else they're up to. This episode is from a live online event we held called Reclaiming the Refugee Narrative. Our friend Chioki Ayansen hosted. I'm Chioki Ayansen, director of the VPM ITA Community Media Center. We're a collaboration space where we share the skills needed to produce podcasts and other media free of charge. Today, we're hosting a special event, Reclaiming the Refugee Narrative, a conversation between myself and author and podcast host Ahmed Bader. Nonprofits and NGOs are often tasked with work that improves human life, but work of this sort doesn't tend to sustain itself, which puts these organizations on a near constant quest for funding. This means that they have to make a case for public and private support. To do this, they tell the story of the work they do and the stories of the people they're assisting. But if one isn't careful, these stories can be more about the effect they have on the donor than the lived experience of the person the story is supposedly about. Stories like these form a kind of dominant narrative, one that my guest Ahmed Bader is working against. Bader is originally from Iraq. He came to the States as a refugee, and for a while now, he's been telling the story of his experience. As a teen, Ahmed founded Narratio, an organization that activates, supports, and highlights the creative expression of displaced young people through fellowships, workshops, publishing, and partnerships. The fruits of this work are in his first book, While the Earth Sleeps, We Travel, a collection of poetry, personal narratives, and art from refugee youth around the world. And now he's the host of Resettled, a podcast tracking the refugees who have resettled from all over the world with the help of agencies like the International Rescue Committee. Ahmed Bader, welcome to the program. What's going on? Hi, Chioki. Thanks for having me. Let's start with your book. And actually, let's just start with the first poem in your book. It's called Frequently Asked Questions to an Iraqi Refugee. What is, what is this poem about? What does it reveal about your thoughts about the dominant refugee narrative that you've encountered on your journey. Thank you, Chioki. So, you know, my family came over to the U.S. in 2008. We left Iraq in 2006, became refugees in Syria. And back then, Syria was taking in refugees. Uh, We were there for a couple of years and were eventually resettled to the U.S. And starting in about 2012, 2013, a family friend encouraged me to start telling my family's story. And, you know, as a, as a high schooler then, and at the time, I didn't really, you know, as a high schooler, you don't want to be any different from anyone else. So I didn't feel like sharing my own story. Uh, but then I was start, starting to try and figure out, okay, what does it mean to be, you know, an Iraqi American Muslim refugee? What does it mean to be all of these things at once? Uh, what does it mean to understand the intersections between these different identities? And what does it mean to explore the tensions uh, between them? And so I started writing. I started, uh, you know, writing poems and essays and started a blog to introduce these works to the world. And then I was, you know, so inspired by the reaction of folks to this. They, you know, for the first time I was able to, you know, explore these different identities, but also have that exploration, uh, you know, heard by other folks. And then I thought, okay, well, this was good, but this is just for me. Why not make it widely available to other young people displaced or otherwise? And so that's how Narratio started, uh, simply as an online platform in the beginning. And as you mentioned, we've grown to do fellowships and uh, workshops and, and partnerships since then. And then the book is just a culmination of all of this work. I traveled to Greece, to Trinidad and Tobago, uh, and across the U.S., but mainly in Syracuse, New York, uh, meeting with displaced young people, doing workshops, doing storytelling programs around the power of storytelling, but critically, this idea of what does it mean to tell your own story on your own terms as someone who happens to be displaced, resettled, or otherwise. And really, the first poem in the book is a, a personal take on that question, and those series of questions um, that I had kind of experienced throughout my time here in the U.S. 
and it's kind of a tongue in cheek as well because some of the questions are just you know ridiculous and anywhere from you know is Osama bin Laden your cousin to do you consider yourself Iraqi American and everything in between uh, and so it's a question and answer aimed to kind of set up uh, the background of this entire project um, and then again begin to answer this question what does it mean to tell your own story on your own terms uh, according to those individuals directly experiencing uh, those different stories not anyone else. So help me set the the distinction. There's the 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 work that you do and there's also the general discourse. And the general discourse has a certain kind of narrative about refugees. Can you describe to me what that narrative is and what its pitfalls are? When we hear the word refugee instinctively we think of war, we think of violence, we think of pain. And, you know, that's definitely part of the story, but it shouldn't be where the story starts and ends. And really, my work is trying to, to complicate that, to complicate what comes to mind when we hear that word so that we're not just assuming victimhood um, from the beginning. And so, you know, in creating these different storytelling platforms for uh, displaced young people to express themselves on, the, on their own terms, they're allowed the opportunity to share whatever story they want to share. Um, you know, they can transcend that assumed story of uh, displacement and, and tragedy by speaking about anything they want to speak to. They can talk about that displacement story if they would like, but they should be given the opportunity to decide what story and what part of their narrative to share with the world. You know, we are more than the tragedies we may have experienced. And through all of this work, it's, it's trying to really combat that dominant narrative of just, you know, the, the victim, the passive victim uh, you know, and obviously, again, there are very, very difficult situations and you know, folks are fleeing their homes and they're trying to, to make a better life, to get a better life. And that's a key part of it. But we have to tell a whole story. We can't just focus on just the tragedy and have the story end there. We have to create spaces where individuals are allowed the fullest range of their experiences, where they can share their own stories in ways that feel authentic to them. And then from there, branch out and introduce that story to different audiences. Well, in light of this, let me just ask, why is the story of the victim so seductive? Why is it the one that prevails? What does it do for us that we want to hold on to it? I think it's convenient. It's convenient because we don't have to engage with the complexity of the human at the other side of that label, refugee. If we just say, uh, you know, this person's a victim, this person left home and just end it right there then, you know, we don't have an opportunity to learn, okay, well, the individual may have experienced that, but what are they doing now? What do they want to do in the future? What are their hopes? What are their dreams? And and it really, it, it increases this distance we assume between our stories and the stories of those who happen to be displaced. Uh, and so I think it, it's, it both creates that distance where we think, okay, well, that's far away. That's happening over there. That does not concern me. But it's, the truth is really far from that. You know, my family was resettled to the U.S. in 2008. Uh, my parents were civil engineers in Iraq for more than 20 years. They, you know, went back to school. They reevaluated their degrees, um, had trouble finding a job for a couple of years, uh, you know, and, and really struggled to, to find their footing, but still kind of continued on and, and uh, you know, tried to find jobs in their field and that struggle, you know, specifically that specific one, whether with with finding a job or trying to provide for your family, that's not a an issue exclusive to refugees, right? That's something where we can all relate to and find ourselves within. Um, and so we have to create spaces where we hear stories like that, where folks are just, you know, are trying to make ends meet and are trying to figure out their their uh, lives in these new places. And so I think. You know, by focusing on those stories and by allowing for the fullest extent of those experiences to come to the surface, that distance, that assumed distance, uh, becomes decreased. Um, where we uh, see refugees as neighbors, as as uh, as friends, as folks our our kids go to school with. And so yeah. I think we, there's a lot of work to be done to lessen that distance and not just assume that that passive uh, and and victim based narrative that we're bombarded with all the time. I'm hearing the way that you're describing uh, like settled re refugee life and and immediately I'm like, oh, wait, like so that's just the regular American rat race. So you're, are you saying that you're just kind of stuck in the same 
situation that most of the people that I know are, are stuck in? Like, is that what's happening here? Because that's such a different way of thinking about things. Because obviously, if if I can think of the refugee only as a victim, well, then victims need champions, right? This is a, this is a thing that you've brought up. And, and if victims need champions, then I can show up to help. I can I can donate money. I can then expect there to be evidence of, of, of that help to to justify my donation. And I can do all of these things while also not thinking that actually the thing that the uh, a refugee to this country faces is the same thing that everybody faces American life with some with some particular challenges. Right. Yeah, and I think we we need to be able to understand both of those things, right? That there are needs that need to be met. Um, you know, there are, you know, causes that need donations. There are, you know, really, really important organizations that need that support. And again, that I'm not really, I'm not trying to knock that. I'm saying that that's not the only thing we should be talking about. Um, and, and also there's a, you know, we have to be able to make a distinction. Someone who, you know, is resettled um, has a completely different life from someone who is, you know, in a camp or is trying to, uh, you know, figure out where they are. Some folks are just in limbo. They're living in urban context. Uh, the research for the book started in Greece. I met with folks in camps, outside of camps. Uh, and also we have to keep in mind that only 1% of refugees are resettled. And as of June, about 80 million folks are displaced in the world. So that's 1% of the world is now displaced. And so 1% of that 1% will ever get a chance to be resettled. And, you know, in in complicating kind of what we think about when we hear th- that word refugee, we have to understand that there are different kinds of displacements, you know, and, and in the project within the book, something that I really wanted to, to get across uh, through each of the workshops you know, and in, in when everything began in Greece, when I met with folks, I wanted to be sure and, and upfront about what the project was and my own relationship to it. I was very upfront about my own family's experience with displacement, but also was careful not to draw any parallels between my experiences and that individual's because we never spent any time in a camp. We were very, very lucky. Um, you know, and, and again, we resettled to the U.S. in 2008, uh, you know, way before the Syrian civil war, way before all these different kinds of waves of displacement that we've experienced in the last 12 years. Uh, not to say that those waves weren't there and, uh, you know, previously in, in different ways, but it's a very different situation now. Uh, and so I think just having to be, you know, in my own work and meeting with other displaced young people and displaced folks in general, it's so important as a storyteller and as someone who's entrusted with these stories uh, and these voices to be upfront about your own positionality and your own intentions. And so when I say, when I talk about the parallels within my own family here in the U.S., kind of the struggle to find jobs and kind of that uh, that work, that everyday work of trying to make ends meet and come up with a better life for you and your, your children so they can go to school and, and thrive in that way, I don't say that to completely equalize those experiences because there are challenges. We all face challenges in so many different ways, but there are really, really interesting things that we can think about to lessen that distance that we're all experiencing in different ways, one of which is the the job hunt. Uh, another, which you know, later on we'll hear from Fatima, who was uh, part of the the Resettled podcast. Uh, you know, Fatima got here around the same age that I got to the U.S. Um, you know, I got here when I was like nine, ten years old. Fatima was a bit older, I think. Uh, and the first couple of years, I was just trying to figure out as a young person where to fit in my school. You know, and as a nine, ten year old, and then going into high school, uh, middle school, and then high school and and college and beyond. You know, I was just trying to figure out, okay, well, I'm a young person, a teenager here in the U.S., where do I fit in here, you know, and, and, you know, within school, who do I hang out with, all of these kind of different questions. So I think there are a lot of questions, a lot of inquiries that, again, lessen that distance between, uh, you know, what we would think of kind of a normal American and a refugee, because refugees are American, Americans as well, you know, I'm, I'm Iraqi American. So I think, again, that we have to... F- really think critically about those distinctions and why we are making those distinctions and what we are assuming about those distinctions uh, as we hear these different labels uh, in different contexts and in different ways. 
And this multiplicity of experience is ultimately reflected in in your book. It's not simply uh, your stories. There there are stories from all over, from people that you met and uh, with your work in Narratio. And, and and so tell me, tell me about some of the the stories that come out of your book that kind of stick with you or that you feel are very good examples of, of this idea of the the how different refugee experiences can be. So first and foremost, the book is not about displacement. It's it's about the experiences and the creative expression of folks who happen to be displaced. You know, it's a key, key distinction I think we, we have to make. And it features about 27 folks from 11 different countries, in addition to my own poetry kind of strewn throughout to, as kind of a mediating force uh, between the different mediums that are represented. There's everything from, you know, a drawing by a six, seven-year-old girl to a poem and painting by 26, 27-year-olds and everything in between. So it's really a, a multimodal uh, approach to complicating this narrative by highlighting the voices and expressions of, of these incredible humans. But they're all, you know, expressing themselves on their own terms. I came in and, you know, doing these workshops, whether it was in a camp or traveling to the islands or just having an interview with folks, uh, we talked about stories as an invitation and the different mediums of the storytelling as an invitation. I didn't want to come in and say, here is what I want (laughs) and what do you have? You know, that's not the point. The point is to come in and say, here's storytelling. Here's how I've seen it uh, be powerful in my uh, own experience and my own story. Here are the different tools. Here's this platform. Here's this book. Would you like to participate? And here are the different mediums that you can participate within. And so I really wanted the project to be an invitation, first in the beginning for the folks that are in it, and then now for the different folks that are going to be able to interact with it. I wanted to inspire more work like it so that each poem, each uh, story, each visual work it really stands alone, but is also part of this this collective. Um, you know, we're a collective of, of displaced young people that are sharing our own stories on our own terms with the world and really reminding the world that our experiences, you know, go beyond, you know, the margins of our asylum documents or, you know, the, the barriers of a camp or our stories can transcend what we may be going through at the moment. And so there are all these and of different ways that these individuals are experiencing their stories and then choosing to express them. So it, it seems to me that one of the things that your books reflects is a, a certain kind of approach. And so I, I want to talk a little bit from an organizational standpoint. I've done some traveling uh, around the world and I've, uh, and I've studied non-governmental organizations uh, doing work, say, in sub-Saharan Africa. And, it, and it's very clear that some organizations have a, a perspective that is, shall we say, unhealthy, right? Uh, I've seen organizations show up in a community and say, good news, we're here to do a thing, you're welcome. Um, and what you've just described in, in, in your work uh, with Narratio is already not like that. Can you tell me a little bit more about your methodology and how it is that you developed it and you know, whether you think it's instructive for others? First and foremost, we try to avoid working from an assumption. You know, with the different communities that we're working within, uh, you know, we try our best to have those community partners that know what that community needs and is looking for. uh, And that's where we start. So for example, the Narratio Fellowship, which we launched in the summer of 2019, uh, in collaboration with Syracuse University uh, and the Northside Learning Center and, and the Metropolitan Museum of Art, we wanted to create a program for resettled refugee youth to be able to, again, share their experiences you know, with, with the world in ways that were thoughtful and in ways that were engaging. And we created this year-long program with a month-long uh, residential component uh, in collaboration with the wonderful uh, professor at Syracuse, Professor Bryce Nordquist. And we had, you know, we wanted to create a program that in- invited these different mediums of storytelling, but invited leaders in each of those mediums to interact with a specific cohort of fellows every year. And we wanted it to be a- an annual program, and, it- and it's continued. So that first month, we focused it on poetry, but with you know different kinds of storytelling strewn throughout. And so we had workshops around podcasting, around uh, filmmaking, around uh, you know uh, media training, and all of these different kind of uh, storytelling uh, approaches. 
And then by the end of it, since the Met was one of our partners, we every fellow picked an object from the ancient Near East galleries at the Met and rewrote their labels as a poem. And then by the end of that month-long residential period, we traveled down to New York and they performed those poems at the Royal Assyrian Court among the objects. And a key part of this program is that the fellows themselves got to interpret those uh, objects by taking into account their own personal histories, their identities, their histories, and then creating something that was indicative of their own experiences or something they may have experienced in the past and connecting it to this object. Again, not necessarily about displacement. You know, some folks talked about that, others didn't. Um, but it's it's about finding these different forums and different opportunities for displaced young people to be able to share those stories, but to enter spaces like the Met, not just as visitors, but as cultural producers. You know, they came in as poets um, and they've performed, you know, those poems at the UN. They've performed them at Christie's and had an exhibit there in February before the world changed. So the point, I think, is to have a methodology that is informed by the community itself rather than something that you formulate and you come in and say, here's what things should be like. And we always like to say, you know, with the program, it's not, you know, it's not there to necessarily just help refugee youth. It's, it's there to activate something they already have. It's not giving power. It's activating a power they already have. So uh, that's another kind of trope we have to think about, too, is that we're not always just giving Sometimes we can use our own platforms to activate something that's already happening. I'll remind the people that uh, Foucault talks about how power moves in all directions. And it's only when we acknowledge that can we really come to grips with it and exercise it properly. Um, can you tell me a bit about uh, your work on the, the podcast Resettled? I know that this is a, a show that was uh, first proposed by Angela Messino uh, a little while back and that you uh, connected with her. And what you've produced is a, a very nice thing. Uh, tell me about the, the process of, of, of coming to work on it and the conversations that you had about how it should be produced. Um, I, I, I say all that uh, knowing that in the very first episode, uh, y- you say this is what this podcast isn't going to be. <laughs> and it's a very strong statement. Uh, pl- please uh, tell me. Yeah, so I was brought on to, to host Resettled by Angela Messina, the executive producer, um, who really came up with the idea of you know, a project to really explore what resettlement means in the U.S. through the lens of those directly experiencing it with you know, six thematic episodes, each exploring uh, you know, resettlement at different stages from education to health, you know, arrival, culture, jobs, and really each episode focusing on, on a different uh, experience or a different part of the, uh, refu- of the resettlement experience. But again, having that experience, we, having us learn about that experience through the experiences of those that have gone through it or are currently going through it. Um, and so initially when, when Angela reached out, I was so excited about the project because she was very upfront about, you know, the representational aspect of it and the community aspect of it. It was a very community-engaged project from the very, very beginning. You know, uh, Angela did workshops with with high schoolers in in, in Richmond and uh, connected with different community partners, resettlement agencies, and really talked to them about the stakes of a project like this and made sure that they were stakeholders in the project as it developed, as it moved forward. Uh, and it was very, very lucky to be, to be brought on about, you know, about halfway through the process with such an incredible team. Uh, and so a key part of it, I think, is again, meeting the community where it is and inviting it to share uh, whichever stories you know, feel authentic to them. And then obviously being very honest about our own authority at VPM and, and as, as storytellers and as journalists is that, okay, well, here's this issue that has become so polarized in so many different ways. How can we share the stories of those that are experiencing it, but share that story and share those stories in ways that are powerful and ways that are engaging, but in ways that are really informed by that individual's experiences, not by anything pre, pre-made that we had kind of sought out to do. So I think it was a really, really uh, important balance that we had to strike and we had to figure out. And we were only able to strike it through multiple, multiple check-ins throughout the project within each episode, within each you know, production conversation, uh, you know, even in discussing the narration and, and how to put together transitions and, and which parts of which stories to include. 
and always checking in with ourselves about the power that we had, uh, you know, because folks were entrusting us with these stories, but also the power and just, you know, making that small edit or making that small choice. And I think being aware of those choices really made the podcast, you know, all the more powerful because it was engaged with the constant and self-aware kind of acknowledgement of our own position in relation to these stories, but also in, in the ways that these individuals that are featured uh, express their stories. So I think it, it's a it's a very, very delicate balance that I hope we struck, um, that I hope uh, you know, we got across because it was something that we were constantly, constantly thinking about uh, and were sensitive to. Uh, so I think really it's, it's that community-engaged and community-informed uh, aspect of the work, the uh, methodology of the work that I think was really central to the, to the podcast and through each episode that comes to light in a different way. It sounds so easy when you say it, and and I think that's often the case uh, for people who have gone through a thing and who have done the hard work to to make it happen. That when they when they say it, it's like, oh well, of course, I'll just do a community centered approach, right? Um, but suppose that I'm the 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 president of like a, of a nervous organization, and and we do resettlement stuff, but we have that next round of funding coming up, and we got to tell these stories. So, what would you say to me? What are the what are the tools that you would give me, like in a very kind of elementary way, to say, hey, when you tell this refugee story do this first what's the first step because I'm, I'm i'm operating off of the 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 bad the bad narrative i'm like i'm looking for victims i'm looking for that for that sizzle how do what do you what do you say to me to kind of put me on the right path first it starts with the self-awareness and kind of asking yourself am i sharing a story of displacement or the story of someone who happens to be displaced you know very very key question and then in asking that thinking about what are my own assumptions? How am I entering the story? What, what's my agenda? Uh, and, and being very, very forward with, with what that is. Because sometimes when we think about you know, different projects and, and planning different projects, we already have certain goals in mind. And op- what so often happens is that through an, an interview or through a specific engagement relating to that project, we're constantly thinking, okay, well, that relates to that goal in the project. But it has to be constantly informed by what that individual is expressing. And whenever it is possible, the individual who is sharing that story should be allowed to share their own story and not have it necessarily told by someone else you know, that's completely removed from, from that story. Of course, there are cases where individuals you know, either don't want to share that story themselves or you know, they just are not interested in having in, in themselves being kind of the public face of that story. Those cases you know, are... are different, of course, and that needs to be acknowledged and, and honored and respected. But really, we have to think about, you know, how, your own positionality as you're going on about a project. How are you entering it? And what is the, is there an agenda? Is there a kind of an overall narrative that you're trying to fit within? Um, so I think it just, it, it's honesty, it's, it's, it's the self-awareness that we need to start with. And again, recognizing that someone who may have been displaced, their story is much more than that displacement and the tragedy of that displacement. You have worked on so many different platforms. There's a book, there's the podcast, there's this partnership with, uh, with the Met, there's something with the UN, there's something about Christie's. Can you just tell me about what, uh, what do you think the importance is of of working across so many different mediums? And if there is one that seems to be particularly good or, or helpful in telling these kinds of stories? I think the multitude of mediums is what makes it so accessible to different folks and, and different groups. And so, you know, whether it's a, a workshop where, uh, you know, we're doing a storytelling exercise that, uh, you know, is around poetry, around uh, drawing or, or, you know, art or, or filmmaking, having different mediums represented in the work itself are so, so important because then an individual doesn't have to just pick one. They can pick whichever one feels authentic to them and feels most accessible. And so part of it is within the ex- the design of the projects themselves. And then there's kind of the overall arc of the podcast, of the fellowship program, of the book. And my goal is to create 
different platforms for st- storytelling and for creative expression that different young people can then lead themselves and, and share whichever stories they would like to share. So I think the, the more the merrier and um, the more in a different type of medium, the merrier as well. Thanks, Ahmed. We're going to take a short break. Stick around for more of the conversation. Uh, we're privileged to have a couple guests with us. Shall we turn to uh, to our guests and get a, a bit more information about the work that you're engaged in? Let's do it. From the International Rescue Committee, uh, we have Justin Gandhi. First off, welcome. Thank you for coming to talk to us. And um, first thing I want to know is, what does the International Rescue Committee do? How does it work? Mm. So the International Rescue Committee, broadly, we're an international organization that is present in over 40 different countries. So when we say, what is the IRC and what do we do? I'll sort of boil it down to sort of a local field office, specifically the Richmond field site. So like the podcast mentions, what does it mean to be resettled? When is somebody resettled? So we have services that when people talk about resettlement, they talk about, you know, this formalized reception and placement program that greets people at the airport helps them get housing, enroll their children into school, et cetera. Um, but we have programs that go all the way through five years that help people naturalize into U.S. citizens, understanding that there's uh, there's a long road to resettlement. So when we're talking about resettlement, most people are referring to this 90-day sort of reception and placement program. So I'll sort of focus in on that. This program is is very, it's, it's a government program, it's through the Department of State, and, and honestly, it's a, it's a very prescribed and very quick program. Uh, and in a lot of ways, it's very unforgiving. Uh, Ahmed describes it as, as one of our meetings as very clinical, which made me chuckle because uh, it, it's very true in a, in a lot of ways. And so typically we get about two weeks notice when a family is coming to the country. So uh, here's a case of, you know, five, six, seven, uh, who's coming from Afghanistan or, or Myanmar or wherever it might be. And with two weeks notice, you know, we began sort of set pre-arrival planning, looking for housing, uh, hopefully as, as affordable as possible in the Richmond community. We're scheduling health appointments and then trying to do as much as we can pre-arrival to have those building blocks in place for the family. Uh, but really on day one, when they arrive, you know, we're, we're greeting them at the airport and we're moving them into their apartment. We're doing an orientation on those things. And, you know, within the first week, you know, we're sitting down with the family to develop a service plan that that's hopefully as client centered and inclusive of their long term, short term goals that comes from their own you know, desires, you know, how they see themselves, you know, one year from resettlement, two years, five years, et cetera. But in that 90 day period, it's, it's sort of an all out blitz of health assessments, getting kids enrolled into school before the first 30 days in the country, which is uh, sort of mind boggling to think about, but it's enrolling, you know, the parents into ESL programs and into employment programs, you know, connecting them to public benefits, you know, these, these means of support past that 90 day window. You know, there's, there's a lot of variables at play in, in every case, uh, which I think the podcast does, does an exceptional job of capturing, you know, some things that are within our control and some things that are so far out of our control and hard to predict. Ahmed says in, in the podcast, resettlement is not neat. Um, and that's true in, in many ways. Uh, there's so many variables and just, uh, you know, the first 90 days are so quick, but, you know, we're, we're doing our best to start this family out on a good foot with, uh, you know, as many things under control, connected to as many resources as possible, and then supporting them, hopefully, as long as, you know, uh, as long as we can and as long as they need us. Um, hopefully, we're making those connections into the school systems or to employers or, you know, into faith communities or whatever, that those those actors sort of come in um, because, you know, in my office is 10 people and, you know, we resettle an average of 150 people a year. And so it's very challenging to maintain that engagement for, for a long trajectory and as, as hard as we try and as quick as we're trying to grow our programs. Um, but what do we do is, is <laughs> it's, it's kind of a tough question because, you know, we do as much as possible and there's, you know, if a client needs something, there's, there's not really anything we, we won't do to support them in that resettlement. So given, uh, I mean, 150 
people for a staff of 10 is a lot. Um, and given that, it, it seems that you probably are quite acquainted with, uh, you know, the, the ways of resettlement. I wonder if there are any kind of common misconceptions about resettlement that you've encountered that you might uh, want to take the time to clarify for, for the rest of us. Yeah, well, I mean, there's 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 misinformation and then there's misconceptions. You know, obviously, there's a lot of misinformation out there regarding who refugees are, why they're coming to the United States and, and the roles that they play in our community. Unfortunately, a lot of that is held by people that are not very supportive of refugee resettlement. Most of those things are easily disproven with with real data. Um, but you know, misconceptions exist. You know, even for people that that support refugee resettlement. You know, going back to you know the description of a very clinical process, I I, I would support that. You know, as as fully committed as our, as our staff is, you know, the structures of these programs and their timetables that we sort of inherit from funders. Um, you know. It's, it's a very fast process. There's there's a little bit of an idealized version of what it means, you know, uh, for somebody who wants to engage with us as, a, as an intern or a volunteer of what our roles are and sort of the length of time that we have with these families in that first initial window. So it, it looks a lot different. Um, then we would really like it to, you know, I think if you ask any one of us, we would like a longer sort of safe safety net, safeguarded zone that we could ease families in. But, you know, knowing what is required to run these programs, you know, uh, I think that's one of the biggest misperceptions is that um, it's very quick, uh, at least that initial resettlement program. And then I also hear that that 90 day window sort of misused in some ways, you know, we, like I said, we do have programs to five years. So it sort of depends on which angle we're looking at it, not to, to split hairs or, or, or uh, you know, be too, you know, down in the weeds for you, but um, you know, so it's, it's sort of two sides of one coin. It's either too short or, you know, people are surprised, uh, you know, that we have, you know, these programs that that last, you know, five years plus. And um, how stable has the RC's operating budget been over the last few years? So we, you know, we have been fairly, fairly lucky. I, I think organizationally, sort of at a national level, we've been very strategic um, in, in navigating, you know, the current challenges to resettlement. Um, you know, IRC is... Um, we are the largest uh, organization of the nine uh, volunteer agencies. And so we, you know, we do have a larger percentage of the resettlement puzzle. Uh, so that's been helpful. One of the benefits of Richmond, just an interesting detail for, for those that are in the community, we've been fairly protected because we are so close to DC. Um, our, our sort of demographics have shifted to a lot of individuals who are coming from Afghanistan, who have a lot of very technical expertise, uh, who used to be engineers, who used to work with the U.S. forces. Um, and so by being, you know, proximate to, to the capital, a lot of people who uh, are resettling do end up in Virginia, who subsequently end up in Richmond. So, you know, we've been very stable. I've been obviously very pleased to, to not have to shed uh, any any positions or any programming. We're actually in a period of, of growth in our office, which is uh, sort of counterintuitive, but, you know, we just landed some funding to do youth programming in the schools and youth mentoring. So we're really excited, you know, especially in this conversation to to really serve those individuals and, and hopefully, you know, highlight their stories and, and, and find ways that we can support that in maybe a different context than the initial resettlement period. Speaking of stories, I'm, I'm wondering, the IRC has been around for, for a little while. Uh, what lessons has it learned about how it tells the story of the people that it serves? Uh, what are the ways that, that you all currently tell stories you know, out in the public sphere? Yeah, so, so everything that Ahmed shared, we're fully cognizant of and, and try to be as conscious of, of all of those considerations as possible. We don't have, you know, the, you know, the different outlets, uh, podcasts, you know, a lot of uh, creative expression and in, in our, you know, sort of uh, ability to share stories. And, you know, that's obviously something that we're interested in doing uh, if we find the right opportunity. But, you know, really, we are very particular and very sort of cautious to, to share stories that show our clients power 
you know, this portrayal of, of victimhood and this continued sort of victim experience is, is something that we, you know, we're very conscious of and, and don't want our clients looked at in that light. We want them to be seen for what they are, you know, uh, valuable, unique contributors to our to our communities, you know, uh, these perspectives, these experiences, uh, the roles that they fill in our, our communities and our schools, our faith communities, uh, in, in our workplace, there's a lot of power, uh, there's a lot of autonomy. Um, so we, we try to share those, those types of stories uh, that highlight that and also to sort of chip away at some of the misinformation that is out there. Um, so sort of all those pieces sort of factor into how we frame and share our clients' stories. Uh, Justin, thank you very much uh, for joining us. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, Ahmed, I know that you're you're from Iraq uh, originally, but you you said you came through Syria and then you made it to the states. So what was what what organization helped facilitate that that transfer, your first uh, arrival in the states? Yeah, I, I think it was first Lutheran Services. Uh, it's one of the resettlement agencies, uh, and we were resettled to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So we went from Syria to to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and uh, moved down to Houston in, in, in 2012. So. I think that anyone who travels anywhere outside of their country will experience some degree of culture shock. But if you're going from Syria to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, what's that like? Like in in terms of and, and you're like a young you're you're like a boy at this point, right? So like what what's a what's an experience that you had as a as a child? you know, moving from Syria to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, which incidentally, I bought a motorcycle out of Sioux Falls, uh, South Dakota, not long ago, but I didn't go there. I had it mailed. Please go go on. <laughs> yeah. So I think, I mean, honestly, when we first found out that, uh, well, at least when I first found out that we were going to the U.S., I thought the U.S. was like a cab ride away. I didn't realize it was going to be so far, uh, you know, and then turns out it's just a few thousand miles. And I think when we arrived, we really, I mean, we didn't really know what to expect. You know, we were like trying to figure out, we didn't realize that the OUX in, in Sioux Falls is silent, you know, or the X is silent. So we figured that out first. Uh, and then really, it was just kind of a, a, a fresh start. And we, we loved it. I mean, Sioux Falls is a wonderful, wonderful city. And, uh, you know, it was just completely new beginning for us. And I think, you know, for one thing that we often kind of forget to talk about, and, and we talk about, you know, in the uh, jobs episode a little bit and resettled and, and others, is kind of the, the parents and their experience versus the, the children and that interaction, you know, and I think that's something that's oftentimes missing from from these stories is that there's such an interesting, um, we can call it like a collaboration so often, because we're both adjusting to this new life. But adjusting it in very different ways, you know, if you're arriving at nine, ten years old, you're, it's not going to take you as long as your parents who are older who to adjust, right? You, you're just starting out, and I think that like five to ten is like the perfect time to pick up a new language, or that like around that age is the, kind of the perfect time. So that was another thing that I think uh, is really interesting that we highlighted in the in the podcast, but you know comes up in, in in different ways as well just as we talk about the story. But really, man, I, I had no idea what we were getting ourselves into, what this new country was going to be like. All my of my experience uh, or all of my kind of perspective about the U.S. was formed by movies, like by like action movies. And, you know, those those are a bit far from the truth from, from what reality was like. So um, I think we were very pleasantly surprised, but we really weren't, weren't sure what to expect. It was very cold. Uh, but we adjusted to that eventually. And um, yeah, so I think it, it's just a, there's the expectation, um, there's knowing what to expect, and then there's just getting there and figuring it out as you go along. Sure, definitely, definitely. Well, you know, we have a, uh, a question that I think might be a good question to ask our, our next guest. Uh, Ahmed, would you mind uh, introducing our next guest? I don't know. I'm so excited to introduce uh, Fatma Subhi, who was a wonderful, wonderful guest in the uh, education episode, the focus of the education episode in, in Resettled, uh, originally from, from Iraq. Hi, hi, Fatma. I'm very, very excited to actually be talking to Fatma because we never actually had a chance to meet. Um, Angela, you know, did the initial interview with, with Fatma at the beginning of the podcast, and obviously we're, we're in the pandemic for a few months. Um, so I'm very, very excited to, to have the chance to check back in 
weekend with with Fatma and really talk about obviously your experience with Resettle, but also, you know, so far, uh, you know, you've been patiently waiting throughout this conversation. We've talked a lot about storytelling. We've talked a lot about agency, what it means to tell your own story on your own terms. But I'd love to hear from you just about, you know, how was that experience of being part of Resettled? Um, how are you now? What are you up to? Um, what has changed since then? Uh, yeah, maybe we'll start there and go from there. Well, thank you for this introduction. And I'm really happy to meet you too. I always heard about you. We heard about your broadcast and I listened to some episodes and I'm really excited because that was the first time I got to hear someone from my country and about my age speaking about their experiences and just like what they had to do in order to become who they are today. So my name is Fatima or Fatima, if you cannot say the first name. Um, currently, <clears throat> go to school in Eastern Mennonite University. I'm studying psychology and I'm planning to be a psychologist. My resettlement story is, of course, really amazing, kind of. <laughs> not sure if you can call it amazing, but yes. Um, one of the things that I really wanted to comment um, was uh, the question is, how do you tell the stories of those people, the refugees? And the thing that caught my attention is the idea of showing only the traumatic part of the story. And I really dislike these things. Like, why do you always just try to show me or anyone that looked like me as depressed, traumatized, um, really almost psychopaths because of the trauma they had experienced so yeah I really love if people can share more positive stories about us and yeah what do you think what is kind of the biggest difference between you know when Angela first met you for like resettled a couple of years ago now it's been yeah. almost two years uh, to now, obviously, you're a college student now. The education episode, episode two, is uh, focused on uh, your experience as a high school senior, and there's a lot that's happened since then. Um, what do you think has been kind of the biggest change since then? Holy, um, <laughs> I almost could not recognize myself when I went back and listened to the episode. It was amazing to see how much I can change in less than two years, and. Yes, I was really impressed by myself. The biggest thing I talked with Angela yesterday about is I was terrified of dogs. And then I got a dog and I realized <laughs> that I cannot even live without the dogs. Like, I just love them so much. And now whenever I have a free time, I would go to the SBCA in Rockingham and just like spend time with them because I love them so much. So that was the biggest part, really. And it's amazing what a creature can do in your life. It just like I realize how much I can be loved and unconditionally and it's just like yeah I love that experience that was the biggest point in my life in the past two years <laughs> is adopting Bella the other big things that happened is really going to college and having more experiences and just like getting to know more what it means to be a refugee in here and like start really asking those big questions like, should I really be in here? Um, am I supposed to say anything about elections or am I supposed to say anything about the things that I disagree with the government laws and all of that? And sometimes I'm really like almost terrified to say these things because, A, I mean, of course, our parents hate that, hate these things. And they think that being silenced is like a price we have to pay for being in here, which is really unfortunate. But it's the truth. So, Yeah. This, these are one of my biggest struggles for being a refugee in here. And also, like, dealing with my family's issues, like, just because my mom, like, wear a headscarf. And when she go out, people would say terrible, terrible things but, and would give it, like, really weird looks and stuff. And, yeah, just try to handle all of these things and understand the human's behavioral <laughs> around. And just hold it with compassion because I know, like... Each person is doing their best in every given moment. So it's not just to find that what they do is right, but just understanding that that's all what they could have done. Fatima, how old were you when you first reached the States? I was 16. 16. Okay. So mm -hmm. this is this uh, this is a question that we can that we can definitely ask to you. We have okay. a, uh, a question from uh, from Miriam who I'm pretty sure shipped her own dog from Kuwait. She loves dogs so much. Whoa. Um, 
Uh, she wants to know about like the process of assimilation for those who are under 18. Like that is for those who get here and then have to go to school. So like, uh, can you t- tell us a, b- a bit about what it was like getting to the States and then more or less immediately within 90 days having to go to school? Holy. Okay. Um, so it's hilarious, but that probably this event will ex- will explain for you everything about how I process being in here. The first day for me in school, I got in a bus and I was terrified just because the school bus arrived from the other door. It's like the back door of the school. And the first time I came to the school, I came from the front door and I was completely messed up because I thought I'm in a different school. And now like I'm all alone. I cannot speak English and I don't know anyone. And I'm just (laughs) standing there crying. And then yeah, it's hilarious, but that's been my life in the first almost year. Like, always been terrified of getting lost because I don't know what getting lost in here is will mean. Like, am I going to get kidnapped? Maybe I will just get lost. Maybe I will just end up homeless because I don't know where to go. And it just, there's so many possibilities. So I think this process of understanding where you are for kids, like any really person under 18 or maybe even over 18 that feeling of being lost and it's true you are lost you have left something really huge where you were born it's like a piece of you that was buried under war remnant, and it's like you can never reclaim it you just have to recreate it somewhere else so and oftentimes and and really unfortunate but kids under 18 and or the, like the second generation immigration, they will have to take care of their parents and they have to care of their family when it comes to English and even transportation and maybe even for many jobs, like they have to take care of them financially. So I believe that older people get affected by resettlement, but I think the younger generations get way more affected because there is a lot of things that going on. They have to deal with school. They have to deal with American schools, which is completely different from everywhere else in the world, especially like Middle Eastern and Asian parts. It's like really different. And then they have to deal with having all of these responsibilities that does not match their age and experiences. So really, if there's one word I can describe it, it's chaos. They don't know how old they are. They don't know how to behave according to their age or according to what the responsibility that they had required them to act. So, yeah. I'm curious, Fatima, in terms of the comparing kind of that first day of, of school in America, I guess, you know, high school, first day of high school compared to your transition now to college. Um, how did kind of that those first days in high school prepare you for starting college? Was that transition different? It definitely was different. I can drive in that time. I can just like, I want to get lost. I can drive. I spend enough time in the city to know where to go. Um, even if I don't know people, I get more confident to just walk around and say hi to people and get to know them. But I believe, and that's at least true for me, that piece of getting lost and feeling lost never left. And it doesn't seem like it would ever leave. Because, yeah. I don't know, maybe just like something about me that will always feel lost because I'm not where, not where I'm supposed to, but where I was supposed to be. And how are your parents doing now? Um, not very well, just because people are getting more racist somehow, <laughs> which is impressive because we think about like improving, but now it's just like it's declining. And again, <laughs> I always try to tell my mom, um, it's a, like, very, it's a very, it's a very yeah. uh, uh, American response that you're like, <laughs> that racism is impressive, <laughs> where you're like, ooh, this, this, this is some new racism. Oh, my goodness. Honestly, I never thought about being colored person until I came here and people start to, like, how to say this, like, um, describing me as a brown person or a colored woman. And I'm just like, well, I'm not colored. It's my color. Like, why do you think I'm colored? It's like there's original color you have to be. And then you just like paint it with something else. So it doesn't make any sense for me. But and then like I start walking around and I'll find all of these people talking like, oh, I'm black, I'm white. And I'm just like, no, you're not. You just have dark skin. And that person have light skin because you 
somehow your ancestors ended up in different places and they needed more sun and they needed less sun and it's just like why are you all fighting about biology it's just stupid like why we don't fight about having 10 fingers i mean it's all the same thing it's just adaptations so all of these things does not make any sense for me just because again i wasn't born in here i know there was like um beauty expectations back home for being like lighter skin and music like, beautiful and all of that and ahmed of course can comment on that <laughs> yes but all of this idea about racism is really new to everyone and it does not make any sense for me and for my family especially my family because my mom doesn't have any relationships with other people because she doesn't speak english so it's really hard for her to understand what's going on and she always like why people act this way like why they just cannot if they don't like me they can just like pass by where they have to look at me and say hateful things like what's going on so yeah this is my family right now i can i can imagine that uh you, when one moves goes to a new country there's a lot of things that you have to get acclimated to but i can imagine that like the weird political uh racial drama is among the most difficult to understand yeah it's too much too much to re- resettle actually truly and as you said, Chioke, I think there's this, uh, like you said, you come into this new place, you're trying to find your place within it, and then there are others that are telling you how to fit in within that place. Uh, and then as all of that is happening, you're seeing others tell others where they belong or where they don't belong. And so you're like, okay, well, where, what do we do now? Like, where, where do I fit? But also, why are different people telling different other folks where they should be, where they shouldn't be? whether that's, you know, realizing that you're a person of color and then realizing the politics of that and what that actually means to claim that in relation to, to different folks, um, it is it's very difficult. And we don't receive a toolkit for how to deal with this, you know? And so we just have to, uh, I think, like you said, Fatima, think back on the kind of the, the core things that we grew up with, those values, the importance of, of accepting folks, of, of standing in solidarity against injustice, and these things we could always hold on to regardless of what label someone places on us or uh, what we witness um, and, and what we don't understand. So I definitely empathize with that. And, and again, I'm so proud of you for, for dealing with it and for continuing to recognize that it's a constant process that you'll constantly need to check in on and, and figure out your own position within. Well, Fatima, thank you for your comments. And I hope you'll stay with us as we run through a few questions here. And we've got a question here from Sadaf, I think, for Ahmed and Fatima. Uh, what's a word of advice to refugees dealing with homesickness and loneliness? Uh, Fatima, do you want to start us off? Sure. I mean, I don't really have a perfect answer for this. But word of advice is realizing your worth and I think that was the biggest thing that I dealt with. I, yeah, and I saw many of my friends deal with it just feeling like you're less than just because you don't have a home and you're looking for a home. So the biggest thing is just really realizing who you are. And it's really hard and vulnerable to feel like people know your misery, but every person has their own misery. And the only difference between you and others is that they can see your misery, but you cannot see theirs. Well said. Yeah. And I think the only thing I would add is that, you know, think about the duality of your experiences as a strength. You know, I think as, you know, now as someone who's been in the U.S. for about 12 years, about just over half of my life here and then half of my life in the Middle East, I really value the both sides. And I I think I always try to find intersections between them. Uh, to bring together those communities in, in ways that they otherwise may not come together. So I think that is the, the other piece of it is that obviously loneliness and homesickness is very, very difficult to overcome. But in thinking of what reminds you of home and then constantly, constantly checking in on what that means uh, and then also just, you know, trying to be in touch with, with home, with folks from home as much as possible, in addition to recognizing that that duality of being in between uh, is also a, a powerful thing. It's difficult. Uh, and there's a lot of responsibility on both ends, but I think there's power in those intersections and power of, uh, in being both things at once. Here's a question from Taylor. What pro-refugee policies can community members in Richmond support? And uh, what reading, besides Ahmed's book, do you recommend for people uh, to learn more about experiences and people who've been displaced? 
Justin, do you want to start us off with kind of the policies and then I can talk about the reading? Yeah, sure. So um, I, I'll talk some of, about the policy work. You know, we, we engaged the General Assembly last year on sort of two fronts, uh, two bills that were that were put into play and that we were supporting and advocating for. Uh, one was the creation of the Office of New Americans. So that is a, is a recent change locally in Virginia. It's a new office that uh, has sort of taken in the Office uh, of, of Refugee Services, but also has services now for a broader immigrant community, which I think is a huge value and a huge win. The other one was a, a supportive bill for special immigrant visa holders and refugees to obtain in-state tuition upon arrival for those who were looking to engage community colleges for vocational or workforce trainings or just, you know, uh, you know, individuals who arrive uh, sort of at the 18, 19-year-old sort of frame where public high school is not an option. How do we get back into, you know, education as fast as possible? So that was a recent win. Um, with the upcoming assembly, we're looking at uh, engaging the assembly members again on, on some on some legislation. I don't want to speak too early on it uh, because, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know how far we'll get with it. Um, you could follow our office online and, and we do sort of push out some action items and some advocacy pieces that do pertain to the local community. Thank you, Justin. And I think on the reading end, you know, I'll shamelessly plug Naratio because not just Naratio's work, but a lot of our partners um, are incredible. We have partnerships with uh, magazines uh, that you know highlight the stories of displaced young people, um, organizations that do uh, projects around virtual reality, and different institutions around the world. So just their Naratio website, I would say, is a great place to start. And then there is so much work being done to really combat this dominant narrative of kind of the passive victim, um, but more so focusing on the different opportunities for folks to share stories, you know, and, and on their own terms. And I think I mean, the Resettled podcast, obviously, I think is a great place to start. And we, you know, talk about other efforts that are happening and just add context. Well, here's a, a sobering question that I, that I think is like very interesting and worth addressing. The question, uh, I came to America as a refugee, but most of my family are still back home in Afghanistan. What advice would you give to those that feel guilty about leaving others behind? I, I'd love to take this one. Uh, and again, everyone, please feel free to chime in. The, the guilt question is a huge one. I remember about three, four years ago, uh, a friend of mine, uh, he said, hey, put on these VR glasses. I want to show you this, this thing I had seen. And it was a New York Times report uh, using virtual reality in different camps around the world. Um, where you could go in and, and kind of see how folks are living and then have that experience. And I remember just, I put it on for like 30 seconds and then took it off. And my question to myself was, why am I imagining this right now? Like, what did I do right? Why am I imagining this and from the safety of my friend's home right now? What, you know, why am I here and why am I imagining this? And I thought about this for a long time and kind of the, the answer or the approach that I kind of ended up deciding on, or that at least I found most helpful, was how can I turn this responsibility or this guilt, rather, into responsibility and then create these different spaces where other stories can rise to the surface? That's just kind of my own perspective and my own approach. Um, we don't have to take responsibility over all the stories that are not our own. Not That's, you know, that's a, a heavy burden and we don't always have to do that. Um, you know, we should think about our own experiences, what we want to express, what we don't want to express, and, and go from there. But really, it's the guilt itself is not productive. You know, it, it doesn't do anything for you or for the your family back home. It, it doesn't do anything. But what it can do is be turned into something bigger than itself, whether that's you creating a different platform for other folks to express their stories, whether that's you offering your time to other folks that happen to be displaced that are maybe going through something similar, um, you know, creating different opportunities for solidarity in that way. So I've always been very interested in, in that question, but also in thinking about what is the most productive response and, and again, not just thinking about productivity in the traditional sense, but productivity, productivity in terms of transformation. What can we transform this guilt into so that it can serve ourselves and then those individuals that may be back home and then our immediate community all around us? Fatima, do you have anything to add? Yes, I, w I will say something really cliche to answer their question is if you want to change the world, start with yourself. And it's very, we always heard this, but I really realized that we always treat everyone around us the same way that we treat ourselves. And 
if you really want to help them, just treat yourself well, love yourself. And then afterward, you'll be able to help, you'll be able to do things that are effective in the world, and you'll be able to fulfill the message that you were sent with to this world. So just be kind to yourself. You don't need to feel guilty. You're sent in here like a mission. You just sent from the skies to do something really beautiful to make this world much better place. You may not see this because our world is kind of really messed up. And it's like, if you think about all the terrible things that happen, it's like a mountain. And every time we come to this world, we move one stone out of this mountain. And then we just keep doing this until the whole thing just fall. And we can see really beautiful views after this mountain. So be really kind to yourself. That's the best thing that you can do for your family and everyone else. Move one stone. Thank you, Fatima. Uh, We have our last question uh, before we depart, and uh, this one comes from France Elvey. I hope that I'm pronouncing that right. How can resettlement organizations move away from using the victim narrative to incentivize high-ranking or wealthy donors? So this is a, I think this is the question that gets at the heart of the problem with the, 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 the bad, the dominant narrative in the first place. So I wonder if you, Justin, or you, Ahmed, have had uh, any experience telling the different story, but still being able to connect with donors. I'll keep it short. I think on my end, you know, I've, I've met folks who kind of match that description and, the stories of resilience, the stories of uh, these kind of powerful stories where individuals are telling their own stories in their own terms have been incredibly effective. And, and folks have been so uh, inspired by them, but also not inspired in, in a kind of a, a pitiful way, but inspired to support and, and, and inspired to share their own platforms and their resources, you know, to, to support. So I, in my own personal experience I've and my work, I've seen our work be powerful enough to be supported for with different individuals. So there is an alternative and that alternative in my experience has, has worked. And so I think we just need to tell more of these stories and create more of these spaces so then they could be heard on the global stage and then amplified um, so that they reach those individuals who are interested in supporting. Justin, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I, I couldn't say it better. You know, I think in some ways uh, we need to step out of the way and, and let, let our clients, let these individuals tell their own stories. And our job is, is to find opportunities to do that. And I think, I mean, I'm at your book, uh, all, 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 Fatima, your story, they're, they're all perfect examples. Like people are inspired. There's power in these stories of the resilience and, you know, how they contribute to our our community and our society and organizations, you know, we, we have obligations to our funders. Um, but, you know, if we can find opportunities outside uh, or, or new ways and uh, supporting our clients to, to explore, you know, their own stories and their own, you know, methods of sharing those, I, I think that would be invaluable. Well, thank you, Ahmed, Fatima, and Justin for joining us this evening. I hope that this conversation has been enlightening for all those out there on the internet. Um, In closing, I'll just say, listen to the VPM podcast, Resettled, wherever you get your podcast or at vpm.org slash resettled. Ahmed Bader's book is While the Earth Sleeps, We Travel, stories, poetry, and art from young refugees around the world, with a foreword from actor and UNHCR Goodwill Ambassador Ben Stiller, out now wherever books are sold, and at earthsleepswetravel.com. Special thanks to the International Rescue Committee. Um, for more information about their work, visit rescue.org Richmond. And of course, I'm Chioki Ianson here at the VPM ICA Community Media Center. We have all manner of programming and we will teach you how to make a podcast. Our website is icavcu.org slash community media. Thank you all for joining. Uh, I hope you all had a good time and that you will have a lovely afternoon and evening. VPM.